Welcome to the Library Love Fest podcast. I'm Virginia Stanley. I'm Chris Connolly. And I'm Lainey Mays. We are the library marketing team at HarperCollins Publishers. Above all, we love bringing librarians and great books together. Join us every week as we present buzzworthy books through author interviews, conversations with editors, and expert opinions from librarians like you. Enjoy the show. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out. Book Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Brought to you by Library Love Fest. Hi, it's Lainey. Welcome back to the podcast. And today we have another episode of Editors Unedited with executive editor Emily Griffin from the Harper Division of HarperCollins. I'm gonna let her take it away. Hi, this is Emily Griffin, and I'm here today talking to Meg Mason, the author of Sorrow and Bliss, coming from Harper in hardcover in February, 2021. Hi, Meg. Hi, Emily, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for having me. And I am talking to you at um, after five o'clock New York time. And what time is it there? Um, after 9am Sydney time. So perfect. <laughs> this is the, this is the crossover. This is the window that we have. Absolutely. So, um, I just wanted to highlight to all the library love fest listeners that we, um, are separated by a vast time gulf. Um, and I'm winding down for the day and Meg is winding up for the day, but, um, we're so happy to be talking to you. Um, so Sorrow and Bliss is absolutely one of my favorite books I've read in the past few years. And I know that many, many other people who have read it have been feeling the same way and saying wonderful things about it. Um, I mentioned in our teaser, um, Ann Patchett, um, talking about a brilliantly funny and multifaceted book about depression, Mary Beth Keene saying that it's a book that changed her. Um, and I'll just say briefly that it's a book about Martha, a woman who has turned 40 and finds her marriage in disarray and moves back in with her very um, eccentric parents in London. Um, and part of the reason why her marriage has fallen apart and why so much of her life has fallen apart is that Martha has been struggling with mental illness since she was about 18 years old. And in Sorrow and Bliss, Meg takes us through the story of this woman who has wanted to be healthy and happy and had people around her who only want her to be happy and yet can't achieve that one thing. And did I mention it's brilliantly sharp and funny and I laughed out loud on so many pages, even as I was empathizing with Martha constantly. So Meg, tell us, how did the book come about? How did, did the character come to you first or the idea? How did this brilliant story get started? Oh my goodness. Well, thank you so much for that lovely summary. Whenever anyone asks me to summarize the book, I just find it so difficult because you know, it takes 90,000 words to tell the story and then they right. want the elevator pitch. And I'm like, right. you get the elevator stuck between floors and then I would have a chance of summarizing it. But no, that's perfect. Thank you. Um, so the book came out of kind of, I guess it was born out of catastrophic career failure on my part insofar as I... <laughs> spent all of 2018 writing a different novel which I'd sold to HarperCollins and um, it 
it, I started it in about February and very soon afterwards, I realized it wasn't really going very well, but you know, you sort of are trained to just press on and you think oh, if I keep working, it'll just come right. Um, and I worked on it all the way up to December, which is when I realized it had never come right. And it had been an awful experience, you know, on the sort of daily basis of being at my desk, it was such a struggle. And so I emailed my publisher with, you know, the 85,000 words that I'd done and a note that said, please don't even read this. I'm just sending it to you to show you that I did it so that you can't sort of sue me. Um, but I basically am sort of retiring from fiction because I just <laughs> didn't feel like I could do it. You know, it'd been sort of um, such a struggle. And then she was so amazing. I don't know how publishers like you just are so gracious and calm and encouraging and you just absorb all our neuroses and she was like just take a break and go away and you know have some time off and just find the joy in it again and I was like there is no joy in it that's what I've just proven over the course of a year but um lo and behold you know two months later I sort of sidled back to my desk and I, I didn't tell anyone because I'd just recently resigned to all of them in this dramatic fashion and then just this little scene came out and it was, it's turned into the first scene of the book, which was when Patrick and Martha are at a wedding. And I just wrote that scene. And then I think because I, this experience of 2018, one of the struggles is that I was trying to make it so novelistic and I was trying mm -hmm. to be clever and I was trying to be, um, I guess, I don't know, sophisticated or literary or something, but it just looked like striving, like every page you could sort of see the effort. So when I started again, and it also had to evolve, my sort of, I guess, modus operandi was just say what happens, just say it. Don't try and be fancy. Don't, you know, if she walks across the room, she walks across the room. She doesn't need mm -hmm. to, you know, amble or glide or just say Saunter. what happens. <laughs> exactly. She doesn't sort of, and I had spent so much time on thesaurus.com the previous year, which just <laughs> makes you feel like such a phony. <laughs> Um, so that that was banned. I wrote these little rules for myself, nothesaurus.com. And I guess that's how the style of the novel emerged, which mm -hmm. is quite economical or it's quite almost prosaic in a way. But I think that that's what has defined it and made it different from other things I've done. And that just formed Martha's character because it meant she's quite dry and it mm -hmm. let that humor and that pathos come in at the same time. And so some of the characters were brought forward from the previous attempt, but otherwise it's sort of entirely new, thank goodness. And I hope no one ever, you know, posthumously discovers that manuscript. I think I've, I think I've erased all traces of it. Oh, I want to read so. it now, but I, I agree. No, it's, it's yours. It's your call, the author's call. And when yeah. Meg talks about her um, wonderful and generous editor, she is referring to Catherine Milne in um, HarperCollins, Australia, who is totally brilliant genius who was able to bring Meg's book our way and highlight it for us, which is how it came about. But this is a book that is written by a New Zealand native uh, who lives in Sydney and uh, being published in the US and it is set in London and in Oxford, England. And I'm curious why you picked um, that country to write about. Obviously, it's a place that you've lived, um, but it's not where you currently live. And why did it feel like the right setting for Martha and this book? I think that the setting chose itself for the novel because there's a theme of Christmas running through it because Patrick, Martha's husband, starts coming to these family Christmases as a teenager and sort of gets rolled into her extended family and falls in love with her when he's sort of mm -hmm. 14 and she's 17. So obviously she ignores him because at that age, that's an enormous age difference, which closes as they get older. 
but truly it was because we have hot Christmases here. Christmas is a summer uh, thing and Christmas is a winter thing. And I feel like if my eye was sort of, you know, to maybe sell this novel overseas, you guys would not buy a hot Christmas. That just seems probably ridiculous to you. So it needed to be Northern Hemisphere. And I think I do, having lived in London for five years at the start of my career, sort of familiar with it. Um, and I think the humour is probably quite British as well. It sort of just mm. made sense to set it there and then Oxford came because after that big catastrophe I sort of went there to rehabilitate for a couple of weeks with my family um some of them lived there and I didn't know I was researching but I was just wandering around and walking up and down that towpath that um you know that runs beside the river in Oxford and then when I started writing again there it sort of all was mm -hmm. so you never know what you're collecting that's going to one day come out in your in your fiction but I guess you always are collecting things Right. Well, it's funny, too. Um, there's a line in the book that one of my favorite lines in the book, and I'm probably going to get it wrong because I don't have it highlighted right here, is, um, you know, when they move to Oxford and uh, Patrick and Martha move to Oxford, which happens fairly early on in the book. It's not a spoiler. Um, and uh, she says something like, it turned out that um, being unhappy was something I could do anywhere. You know, just like being a freelance food writer, being unhappy was something I could do anywhere. And I think there's something incredibly um, powerful in the fact that they live in the most idyllic place in many ways, right? You know, they mm -hmm. have the beautiful river and you can go for walks and there's nature and everything. And that is not enough to quote unquote, cure Martha, that her illness exactly. and her um, sort of sense of, of uh, crushing depression is not something that is going to be cured by a little sunshine or a few trees. Um, yeah, I think because it was Patrick's idea to move there, he said, you know, let's leave London in case London is the problem, because mm -hmm. she's obviously been on this sort of 20 year journey to try and discover what's wrong with her and what happened to her when she was 17 and no doctor has been able to diagnose it. You know, she's received so many incorrect diagnoses and eventually she just decides that maybe this is just me. Maybe I'm just a too difficult, too sensitive mm -hmm. person. And I think, you know, when there's that mystery, you sort of know there's something about you and when you can't identify what it is, you start to think it, maybe it is where I live or maybe it is mm -hmm. my marriage or you want to sort of find there must be a reason for this. And so they moved to Oxford, but of course, when you move you take you with you you know what I mean so the problem comes with you because it is just innate to her so I think they try all these things and then eventually everyone sort of concurs with that diagnosis but she still deep down knows there's something unsolved about who she is and why she makes the decisions that she does yeah and obviously I mean I don't want to give away too many spoilers about Martha's journey and what she sort of discovers about herself because that really is the heart of sorrow and bliss um and I'm not making it sound like as much of a page turner as it is like a woman's <laughs> journey but it really truly is um watching her find this out um but of course one of the things that shapes us all so much um you know more than anything else uh is our families and um, she has quite a complicated um, and I would say difficult family. And how did you come up with these characters? I mean, especially her parents um, who I think are uh, both extremely well-drawn and feel extremely real. Um, where did they come from in your head? Gosh, it, it's so hard to remember because it's such a journey. It's such a long process. and things develop on the page and then you have absolutely no idea when they appeared and they <laughs> sort of just become fact. 
I know that retrospectively, I realized that Fergus, her father, has been influenced by. Do you remember Mortmain from I Capture the Castle? Who's the yes. failed writer who yes. the daughters eventually lock him in the water tower uh-huh. so that he will produce a novel. And that was a novel that I loved and read as sort of in my early 20s. And I must have again absorbed that. And mm-hmm. then sort of, I guess, that this manifested on the page. And he he's sweet and kind, but ineffectual. Mm-hmm. And he's sort of under his wife's thumb. She's Celia and she's a sculptress. And uh, a big personality sort of the dominant she sets the tone in the house and she and Martha have had a relatively difficult relationship I guess they're probably really similar mm-hmm. but um that in the way that mothers and daughters can be and therefore sort of clash uh but there's redemption in that relationship which I think is so important and it doesn't necessarily I mean in every way the novel doesn't necessarily show that Martha gets everything she wants but mm-hmm. she gets something different and I think that's more the story of life I think that's more realistic rather than tying this all off with happy endings I think that if you persevere in the way that Patrick and Martha do then there's reward in that and I think that's a happy ending of sorts and I say all of that because I'm like it has a happy ending I promise (laughs) I completely agree I completely agree um it's not tied up with a bow but it is certainly a um a book with a lot of redemption, um, some of it coming through insight, some of it coming through external forces, um, um, maybe even a mini deus ex machina. I'm thinking about Fergus's specific um, journey, um, but all of the characters learn something. And we see her parents who are well, you know, into their seventies, I think also changing um, and discovering things about themselves later in life, which is not always something that um, happens. Um, yeah. And I know you are asked this in every single, um, <laughs> su- you know, book club meeting in Australia and everyone who interviews you, how did you come up with Ingrid, the most foul mouthed and wonderful <laughs> sort of sidekick ever to grace the pages of fiction? She is uh, Martha's sister um, for those listening. I think it's so funny. You're right. I had a zoom sort of podcast launch and the interviewer said to me who's your favorite character in the book and why is it Ingrid (laughs) and I was just she is she has definitely found her little fan base I think she I don't have a sister so I think she's pure wish fulfillment she's probably 20 years of me wanting or actually like 35 years of me (laughs) wanting a sister and I think she's a lovely um foil to Martha in a way or she serves a purpose because the book is told Martha tells the story Mm -hmm. and obviously she presents herself in a certain way and she's very hard on herself so whenever someone says oh she's unlikable I always point to the fact that the book is almost it's confessional on her part and whenever she does relate something awful she's done and she does do awful things she treats people terribly especially Patrick husband who's so loving but if you notice it's always in this sense of she's apologizing and she is um, she's she's confessing to this and mm-hmm. it's usually that follows then a little vignette where you see that actually she must from an external sense there must be something about her that draws these people to her and her representation of herself isn't entirely reliable so I think the fact that Ingrid just adores her and is so close mm-hmm. to her and sticks by her through this awful two decades um, shows that there must be something some charisma that Martha has or humor that she has and so I think you need these close and you know attractive characters like Ingrid to show that 
let's hang in there with Martha and just see what happens. I think I think she's definitely unlikable in the first few pages, but whenever people say that to me, I'm like, yeah, but where are you up to though? Because right. by the end, you'll want her for your bridesmaid, I promise. Right, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. And I think seeing um, her, Martha's ability to look at her sister and know that her sister is so charming and funny and smart and loving and that the two of them are very much alike allows Martha to, you know, show us that she's wonderful. They're both wonderful. And they were very much also bonded by having a kind of uh, disheveled childhood. Being the survivors um, and and being the children of artists who were struggling artists and who were kind of struggling to um, get their acts together a lot of the time. Um, And then you have the amazing foils um, in the family of uh, her Celia's sister, Winsome, and her mm-hmm. awful husband and their children. <laughs> yeah. And their children do uh, play an important role, of course, in, inc- in introducing Martha to Patrick. Um, but this family uh, who they spend Christmas and other holidays with is just an incredible um, sort of, it's a send up of a rich family, but also you get to know these people as individuals in a really powerful way. Thank you. I think I think every novel to some extent and especially British novels or British set novels are an exploration of class. I don't think you can write a British set novel without capturing class but I think what was interesting to me so obviously you know uh, Fergus is at one point compared to a male Sylvia Plath (laughs) but it's just and but Winston married money so Celia marries a male Sylvia Plath Winston marries money in Roland so he's never had to work and they live in this enormous townhouse in Belgravia where Martha's family live in this absolutely crumbling terrace in Shepherd's Bush where everything's always sort of broken and damp and you know dark Um, but I think that meant that I could explore class within a family rather Mm -hmm. than externally because I think that happens like Absolutely. You start in the same place and Celia and Winston didn't have a privileged childhood, but the decisions that you make draw you in different directions. And then obviously money becomes sort of this subterranean issue between Winsome and Celia and that's sort of where their tension lies. But I think that also sort of lays the foundation for the fact that although Martha and Ingrid adore each other, Ingrid goes in one direction by getting married and having eventually four children and mm-hmm. Martha doesn't have children. And it's almost like how as siblings, when you, you, you know, you keep getting further and further away in your life choices, how do you stay close and how do you keep that common ground when there's so much support between them, but sort of everything in their life is pulling them in opposite directions. And I guess that's where Ingrid and Martha's tension comes from eventually that Ingrid's exhausted and sort of says at one point, I can't care for you anymore, Martha, you know, when I'm caring for the children, I I can't sort of care for you as well. And I think that's one of the things that um, acts as a catalyst of Martha sort of finally growing up at 40 yeah. and that's where it's a coming of age novel, but for middle age. Absolutely. <laughs> age age I, I think we need more coming of age novels. I mean, I, I, um, I love reading about, you know, a great story about teenagers when I feel like the voice or preteens or, you know, when the voice is really strong and I can believe the child's voice and put myself in that head, in their head. Um, but you know, I'm 40, I'm still coming of age, I hope. And I need to read stories of, of change and transformation. Um, you know, along the way. I mean, I could have been less mature at 18. Like (laughs) no one truly comes of age at 18, maybe legally, but I think in every other sense, I mean, have you ever met a fully evolved and reconstructed 18 year old? I think it takes a lot longer than that. Yeah. Yeah. 
And how did you sort of decide to tell the story backwards um, a little bit in terms of um, the time setup of starting with the sort of dissolution of the marriage and then letting us know how, how we got there? I think it's because I don't plan novels stage by stage. I think some mm -hmm. people, you know, there's always this discussion of do you plot every sort of chapter, but all I had was the point where I wanted them to end up. So mm -hmm. I sort of started at the penultimate stage before that, knowing that I was then going to write all the way to this, to this resolution and everything sort of had to just track between those two things. But I think it's just, it's just a, interesting device for readers because you want to know well hang on how are we going to get here because then we sort of roll back all the way to you know when Martha's 17 and what she describes as this bomb going off in her brain that sort of changes her chemistry and her makeup mm -hmm. from there so it, you want to know I suppose how the journey is going to unfold and how you get back to that place and is that really the ending you know if you started what feels like the ending is it actually going to be or is there one more stage after that yeah. which there is and I hope that readers will persist in getting there because, <laughs> and it will reward them that's what I hope. Um, speaking of Martha being 17 and the bomb going off in her brain um, how much research did you have to do about mental illness I mean had you did you do a lot of reading did you talk to experts um, and I'm interested in that and also how much research you had to do on other topics for this book. Yeah, I think in a way there's this amazing someone asked F Scott Fitzgerald how long it took him to write Gatsby and he said three minutes to conceive three months to write and a lifetime to collect the data mm -hmm. and I think in a way I have been collecting for that because I discovered there's a New Zealand novelist called Janet Frame oh, yes. who wrote a book called Owls Do Cry which is incredible and they she wrote it in the 50s and it's it was such a I don't know how it did then but it's such an incredible um, she's sort of described as the first person who wrote about mental illness from the perspective of the sufferer since Virginia Woolf. So she mm -hmm. was kind of number two. And it, it was so experimental and beautiful and I think stylistically unusual. And I read that when I was 20 and it was sort of such a revelation to me. And then it sort of set me on the course of reading all through, I guess, the canon of female lunacy for want of a better word so you know the yellow wallpaper mm -hmm. and um you know the full wolf back catalog which you know is directly mentioned in the book and I think I must have been just um you know evolving that and I think they are even you know and I read a lot of non-fiction and sort of medical text and mm -hmm. articles and things but I think those were in a way more informative because they just describe it from the inside and I think, you know, it's Martha's language when she says, you know, there's something wrong with me. It's not, mm -hmm. you know, I wouldn't necessarily apply that language myself, but I think that it's just that feeling, the mystery and the frustration and the, I guess, almost the bondage of this thing that, you know, is, is um, controlling you and informing all your decisions. And I think that's where I learned that and it all was there ready to come out. But I think it was something I just wanted to be so careful about mm -hmm. um, because it's a big thing to portray it and to get it right. And it's a huge responsibility to take on to yourself to sort of represent something that is a real experience for so many people oh, yeah. and to do that sensitively. But also my ambition was to write a funny book about <laughs> depression. So that's kind of a massive type, you know, high wire act because you don't want to make light of it, but you also can't write 350 pages of blackness. Like there has mm -hmm. to be something to spur you on and I think that you know life is like that like it's humor and pathos you know mixed in I think the humor can't be just this adjunct 
Um, so yeah, so I just went broad and then just narrowed it and narrowed it and narrowed it and refined it. But there's a way, and we were, you and I were discussing whether this is a spoiler, but there's a way that um, the condition is handled that doesn't mm -hmm. fully reveal what it is. And I think when people have asked me why I did that, I think it's because if I had have specifically named this condition ultimately, mm -hmm it would become a book about mental illness. It would become a book right. about that mental illness and it would be, you know, the schizophrenia book or the bipolar book or, mm -hmm. you know, and I don't, I didn't want it to be restricted in that way because to me overall it is a love story, but it's, you know, it's fed, you know, that it's impacted by the mental illness. But I think I wanted to make it not about that. And I think insofar as Martha's on this journey to discover, you know, to push through this not knowing, I think by leaving it slightly opaque, it forces the reader to feel empathy mm -hmm. of now, now you don't know. And, you know, when readers have said, it's so frustrating, I'm like, well, imagine how frustrating it must have been for Martha. You know to what I mean? To have that illness. Yes, exactly. exactly. So to force that. And I think as well, it was just because as a human being, more than an author, I just wanted to, I couldn't bear the idea of portraying and representing that experience incorrectly. Mm -hmm. So I think it served that purpose as well. And I think I've done the right thing, but readers are having quite a strong reaction to it, which I find really interesting, either strongly positive and it sort of, you know, plays into all the discussion about labels and the purpose mm -hmm. and value of labels. Martha says labels are actually wonderful if they're right, because they save you from forming an incorrect label for yourself and applying that. So I'll see. I'd, I would love to see how U.S. readers. I can't wait to hear what one. U.S. readers are going to say and U.S. librarians, of course, who were, um, who are listening exactly. to this. Um, and so our book comes out on um, in February uh, 2021, but uh, Sorrow and Bliss has already been published in Australia to rave reviews. And uh, just last question: What has it been like to have a book come out during COVID? I know you're. Um, uh, you know, lockdown and rules are, are a bit different than ours right now. But uh, what has the experience been like for you? Yeah, I think it was, I think it was nerve wracking going into it because we were sort of wrapping up the production and the, mm -hmm. you know, the editing in about February. And then that was when everything was starting mm -hmm. to change and the ground was shifting. But I think so my, they did move the publication date here to July, which at the time was sort of you know, creating a book is like a pregnancy. And that was like being told that actually I was not, you know, it was going to be a 14 month pregnancy instead of a nine month, you know, moving my due date. So it was kind of, but in the end, I felt really lucky because by July, you know, the bookshops and the libraries had figured out ways to do this and the curbside service and the amazing Zoom and all those virtual events, which has just been incredible how clever and creative and generous especially libraries have been mm -hmm. and sort of supporting authors because I think we were all pretty worried. But at the same time, there's been this incredible sort of collegiate feeling amongst us of almost like, oh, class of 2020, like you were, you were a COVID author. So I right, think right. to chat about. And um, so, yeah, I think we'll certainly always remember it. And I think that books find their way. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? I just need one librarian to, you know, press it into the hands of her you know regulars and all of those <laughs> sorts of things and I think I think publicity is amazing but ultimately if you get this book and when you finish it you want to hand it to your mom when mm -hmm. she wants to hand it to her best friend or you know that's sort of how books find their own own life so I really I hope it's such an amazing idea to me that's something I wrote you know in my little 
garden shed office has found its way to the other side of the world <laughs> and it will be on shelves and you know the library table and book clubs and things I just it's just so surreal I'm it's, very excited it's very exciting to see and we've been seeing a massive groundswell of support in the U.S. and abroad all of which is very exciting so again I just wanted to mention that Sorrow and Bliss goes on sale in hardcover from Harper in February 2021 I hope you get a chance to read it. Meg, thank you so much for talking to me tonight, today. Oh, it's my pleasure. And, thank you guys uh, this morning and this evening. Great. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Library Love Fest podcast. For more information on this week's episode, go to librarylovefest.com. Enjoying the show? We would love to hear what you think. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Library Love Fest and on Instagram at Harper Library. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share the show with a friend. Lastly, if you enjoy our show, we bet you'll enjoy all of the other podcasts from HarperCollins Publishers. Find a list of shows at harpercollins.com forward slash podcast. See you next week.